Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that will enable you to contribute to my work and to help keep the podcast going and keep it light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a cash app profile for the show. And one-time contributions can be sent to the show's cash tag, which is dollar sign Mr. Jeffersonian. And all of this information will be listed in the show notes page as well. Any contribution amounts help and thank you in advance to anyone who chooses to pitch in. And for my supporters, I recently introduced an exclusive tier for y'all, and it's called Mr. Jeffersonian's Ward Republic. Perks of being a supporting listener currently include one video call with me and the other Ward Republic members each month, and up to 40 minutes each call. It's a great atmosphere, and we'd love to have you there. All you need to do to become a member of the Ward Republic is start contributing today at the $4.99 per month level through the Anchor link, or if you'd rather go through Cash App, then you can round it up to $5 per month. Um, essentially, as long as it comes out to $60 per year, you're, you're going to be covered. And speaking of groups, if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. And just for basic group level access, I'm always going to keep that free. So if you can't afford to contribute, that's perfectly fine. You can still come into the group, see what we're discussing over there. We'd love to have you. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you that group invite. And if you're not familiar with MeWe's platform, contacts are the same as being friends on Facebook. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right, so as mentioned in one of our previous episodes, the incorporation doctrine, along with Robert Pittman invoking the concept of parents patriae over Texas SB8, has really disturbed me and has gotten me all kinds of fired up. And I'm feeling quite rebellious now, and because of that, I wanted to take this opportunity to begin our study of the man who wrote the book on resisting federal judicial tyranny, Spencer Rowan. And this episode is going to be an introduction to the man, and subsequent episodes are going to be readings of some of his essays that smack down the Supreme Court to its proper role as a footnote department of the general government. And without further ado, let's get started. In the South, there is a saying that used to be heard and printed with great frequency, so you would hear and see this far and wide. And this saying goes, rebel born, rebel bred, I'll be a rebel till the day I'm dead. And Spencer Rowan embodies this phrase perhaps more than anyone else in American history. And he came into the world kicking and screaming on April 4th, 1762 in Essex County, Virginia. His father, William Rowan Jr., was of Scottish descent and a wealthy planner. His mother's name was Judith Ball Rowan. Now, William, so Spencer's father, served for a time as Deputy Attorney General for the British Crown and was also the Colonel of the Essex County Militia. However, this would change when the British Parliament passed the Stamp Act in 1765. William would become one of the prominent leaders of the Essex Resistance, and he was even a draftsman and signer of the Leedstown Resolves, which were, in effect, ordinances of nullification against the Stamp Acts, explicitly pledging to prevent the execution of the law. 
This document also hinted at physical violence against any who complied with the law, stating, quote, that immediate danger and disgrace shall attend their prostitute purposes, end quote. William and Francis Waring also co-founded the Essex group Friends of Liberty, which was later called by a more common name, the Sons of Liberty. And under this giant of a man, Spencer Rowan learned firsthand what it took to stand firm and secure your liberty or your freedom. Now, another major event when Spencer was only 10 years old may have sealed his fate more than anything else that happened after this. So in 1772, he went with his father to the old Virginia capital in Williamsburg, Virginia. And while sitting in the House of Burgesses that day, he heard none other than the Lion of Liberty, Patrick Henry, giving an electrifying oration to the assembly. In his later years, Spencer would reflect on this day, stating, quote, Perhaps it is not too much to affirm that it is owing to this one quality of this single man that our revolution took place at the time it did, end quote. And after this particular day, young Spencer became consumed with reading all the pieces dedicated to the cause of American independence, and he was particularly drawn to anti-federalist George Mason, and particularly from Mason, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which was a precursor to the latter Declaration of Independence, which was authored primarily by Thomas Jefferson. And when his political views became more mature, Rowan continuously turned to Mason's language from this document that all men are equally free and independent. So he recognized that you should aspire to have equality under the law, but he was not an egalitarian. He actually rejected the more well-known line from Jefferson's declaration that all men are created equal. So he chose equally free and independent versus all men are created equal. Again, he, he did not want egalitarianism of any sort because he recognized the problems with that. The extent of equality should extend to equality under the law. So no man is above the law. No kings. Now, at the ripe old age of 13, Spencer saw some of the firsthand effects of the burgeoning revolution. His father, by this point, had become a devout American patriot, and he was known to be quite severe in his treatment of British loyalists or Tories. But Spencer, being inspired by his father's military prowess, at 13 years old, decided he was going to go and volunteer for the Virginia militia. And it's kind of humorous, kind of conjuring up this image. And he took it upon himself to take up his short carbine rifle and a tomahawk. And he had a hunting shirt in which he hand-stitched liberty or death. And he marched his happy self on down to the nearest recruiting station. But much to his chagrin, he was turned down for service at this time because he was too young. But Spencer would never forget this revolutionary fervor, and as he matured, he became increasingly jealous of his liberties, and he was always proud of the revolutionary heritage that his father fought to achieve. And recounting this heritage, he would write in 1804 that his father and Patrick Henry had counted the cost of the contest and found nothing so intolerable as voluntary slavery. And now I ask you, where is that spirit of independence today or that spirit of resistance today? As we've had people stripped down of almost everything over the last roughly 19 months, where is this spirit of resistance? Why are we okay voluntarily giving ourselves away into slavery to the general government? Who are they to tell us that we are non-essential? For anybody who lost a job because of that or for anybody who was laid off for a prolonged period of time because of that— Ask yourself that question every time you look in the mirror. Who is the general government to tell me that I am non-essential? Now, the last major influence in the early life of Spencer Rowan that we're going to talk about today was George Wythe. 
And y'all will recall from the Jeffersonian Mount Rushmore episode that Wyatt was the mentor of the legends. He played a role in instructing Thomas Jefferson, John Marshall, Spencer Rowan, James Monroe, St. George Tucker, and several other prominent members of Revolutionary Virginia. And Spencer came under his direction at the age of 14 after enrolling at the College of William and Mary. So after studying under Wyatt and after having some years to mature a little bit. In 1783, at age 21, Spencer Rowan got his first taste of state politics after being elected to the Virginia House of Delegates. And one of the major issues of Virginia politics in this time was the status of the Anglican Church of Virginia. Though official disestablishment had begun in 1776, the church still claimed considerable influence, and none other than Patrick Henry supported a bill that would require tax-funded seminaries on behalf of the church. Still in awe of Henry's political presence, Rowan actually had the courage to speak out against the old line of liberty and oppose compulsory contributions to a pseudo-state church, and Henry's bill was ultimately defeated. Now, also among the group who sided against the church were political giants like James Madison, George Mason, and Thomas Jefferson. I keep telling y'all, early Virginia produced an unbelievably high number of statesmen, Now, after the debating ended on this particular bill, Henry had a newfound respect for Spencer Rowan, who was willing to stand up to anyone if he detected threats to individual liberty. So again, keep in mind, Spencer Rowan considered Henry a personal hero of his, but he still had the courage to speak up. It's kind of that old saying, you know, it takes courage to stand up to your enemies, but it takes even more courage to stand up to your friends. So it's no small matter that Spencer Rowan was was willing to do this. He he was willing to stand toe-to-toe against his political hero and say, I, I cannot support this. From this point onward, Rowan would capture the attention of Henry, and their relationship would actually be further cemented in 1786, and that's the year when Spencer actually asked for Anne Henry's hand in marriage, and Anne Henry was the daughter of Patrick Henry, so now his political hero is his father-in-law. And Spencer Rowan's next political battle would come in 1788 when the instrument of the Philadelphia Convention was debated in the Virginia State Convention or Virginia State Ratifying Convention. Concerned at the lack of explicit recognition of states' rights, Rowan predictably fell in the camp of the Anti-Federalist. And also around this time, Rowan revealed a short fuse and what has been described as a pretty violent temper when he learned that then-Governor Edmund Randolph intended to reinstate Tory Robert Beverly to his former post on the state judiciary. Rowan viciously attacked Beverly's character and wrote to the governor he could not believe that it could even be considered to give a Tory political clout over the patriotic citizens of Virginia. Now, ultimately, he lost this battle, and he was reprimanded pretty severely for his seeming ambition and irrational anger. And it would seem that Rowan was always one to let his passion shine through as he would Right later on, quote, no man is more sensible than myself of the comfort of passing down the stream of life quietly, but I am prepared to do my duty. I have always preferred the tempestuous sea of liberty to the calm of despotism, end quote. And holding true to his words, Rowan would chastise Governor Randolph for flipping and supporting the Constitution as Virginia's ratifying convention drew to a close. And likewise, Rowan also vigorously opposed the Federalist essays of Hamilton, Madison, and John Jay. And during the convention, Rowan would pay especially close attention to John Marshall's arguments against George Mason regarding the powers of the general government and specifically the federal judiciary. 
Of critical import in these exchanges are the following arguments from Marshall. Has the government of the United States power to make laws on every subject? Can they make laws affecting the mode of transferring property or contracts or claims between citizens of the same state? Can they go beyond the delegated powers? If they were to make a law not warranted by any of the powers enumerated, it would be considered by the judges as an infringement of the Constitution which they are to guard. They would declare it void. Again, that's coming from John Marshall. But Marshall would directly contradict the statement in the Supreme Court case of Dartmouth College v. Woodward. And the other argument for Marshall during the convention, and Rowan would especially hone in on this one, and he would ridicule and call out Marshall for his hypocrisy, was this. I hope no gentleman will think that a state will be called at the bar of the federal court. It is not rational to suppose that the sovereign power shall be dragged before a court. And, well, Marshall would be directly refuted by the Supreme Court of John Jay in the case of Chisholm v. Georgia on that particular topic. Despite the anti-federalist presence in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, when the time came to tally the votes, Virginia's delegation voted in favor of ratification 89 to 79, but they did retain the ability to withdraw. They actually explicitly said that they would retain the right to dissolve it whenever it seemed necessary to do so. Now, Spencer Rowan actually noted a somber tone by those who voted in favor instead of a jubilant spirit. No one was certain of what they had just done in that camp, as far as the pro-ratification folks were concerned. And hereafter, after, Rowan would despise John Marshall and look on James Madison with deep distrust. And to this point, John Randolph of Roanoke actually also distrusted Madison. So the old Republicans, you know, John Taylor of Caroline, John Randolph of Roanoke, Spencer Rowan... They all distrusted Madison, and especially John Randolph of Roanoke considered him a Federalist in Republicans' clothing, and <laughs> Randolph would actually call him a Yazoo man. Uh, so if y'all recall from the John Randolph episodes, the Yazoo land scandal was something James Madison, he, he had an unsavory role in that, and Randolph would never forgive him, and for that matter, neither would Spencer Rowan. So the Constitution was now ratified. The damage is now done. So what does Spencer Rowan do? And in my opinion, this may be one of the most fascinating what-if questions in American history, and it's a shame that so few people now remember Spencer Rowan. At this key juncture, would he throw his hat in the ring for federal Congress so he could stand firm on his anti-federalist positions, or would he take a different path? Well, it just so happened that Virginia at this time created four new judgeships within their general court, which was at that time the highest court in criminal matters and intermediate appeals for civil cases within the state. And the state legislature could think of no better candidate than the rabidly states' rights Spencer Rowan, and they elected him to one of these judgeships on November 19, 1789, at the age of 27, very young. Now, some of the gentry in Virginia, uh, George Washington actually included, were not satisfied with this move as they thought it was more of a product of Patrick Henry pulling strings behind the scenes than of Spencer Rowan being eminently qualified to hold the office. But the deed was done, and Spencer Rowan was put on the path to his ultimate destiny. Now, this situation did have to cause some awkwardness, you know, just from an outsider's perspective. So Rowan would sometimes actually hear cases in which his father-in-law was the counsel for the defense. And one notable case for this is a murder case in which Patrick Henry was the defense attorney. 
And Spencer Rowan did not recuse himself from the case. So even though his father-in-law essentially was the defense counsel, Rowan did not recuse himself. So I, I imagine that was pretty awkward, or at least in modern times that would be frowned upon. But at the time, nobody questioned or raised any sort of doubt over the moral integrity of either party, so of either Henry or of Spencer Rowan. And the case was allowed to proceed, and, and nobody expected Rowan to recuse himself. Nobody demanded that he recuse himself. So I, I wouldn't have done that, but it's kind of interesting to note that both men had such high moral standing within the community that, that it wasn't even a question. Now, during his time on the general court bench, Rowan would also meet St. George Tucker and begin a long acquaintance that was sometimes friendly and sometimes not so much. Tucker was a similar force on the side of states' rights, and he published his magnum opus on the U.S. Constitution in 1803, which is titled A View of the Constitution of the United States. But one of Spencer Rowan's most notable accomplishments was to fully implement the concept of judicial review within the state of Virginia, which he did in the 1793 case Camper v. Hawkins. And after just five years on the general court, Spencer Rowan used his ambition to throw his lot in for a nomination to the Virginia Court of Appeals when a vacancy opened in 1794. And for those who may not know, the Virginia Court of Appeals at this time was the equivalent to the modern-day Virginia Supreme Court. And Rowan was able to effectively use his political acumen and connection with Patrick Henry to, to secure this position at age 32. And this is where he would forever cement his legacy as the champion of states' rights in the annals of Virginia history, and he would actually advise such decentralist luminaries as Thomas Jefferson and even John Randolph of Roanoke, and Rowan would, would hold this seat on the bench until his death 28 years later, but it was also at this time that he and St. George Tucker actually sort of developed their rivalry. St. George Tucker didn't really comment on this too much, but a lot of people actually thought that he would be the one who received this nomination because he was such a prolific lawyer and widely recognized as the most well-educated attorney in the state of Virginia at the time. So it, it was sort of a slap in the face from his perspective. Again, he didn't really firsthand comment on it too much in public, but those are the other prominent political figures of the day were really surprised that it went to Rowan and not Tucker. Now, Spencer Rowan wasted no time in entrenching his ardent anti-federalist views once he took office. And one of the biggest cases in his early days on the court revolved around the taxing power of the general government, specifically con concerning the Carriage Tax Act of 1794. The recognized leader of the Virginia Court of Appeals at this time was actually not Spencer Rowan. It was Justice Edmund Pendleton. And he, along with Spencer Rowan, John Taylor of Caroline, Daniel Hilton, and John Page, refused to pay the federal carriage tax. Pendleton and Rowan specifically leaned on Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution that stipulated direct taxes from the general government had to be based on apportionment and remitted via the state governments. And for more context or depth on that particular topic, listeners will do well to read up on Hilton v. United States and see how the general government finagled that case to try and redefine what the term direct means when, when it came to tax and authority. Now, his time on the Court of Appeals also saw the passage of the Virginia Resolutions, and he did not let his judgeship get in the way of his anti-federalist political beliefs. So Spencer Rowan was, was very partisan on the court. But Justice Rowan was a firm believer in the doctrine set forth by the Resolutions and thought it was common sense that a federal system could only function properly if the states retained the right of nullification over unconstitutional acts. 
And surprisingly enough, though, Patrick Henry did not support the idea of, of nullification, and he, in his later days, actually sort of turned away from states' rights. And he would even go as far as to say, even if the issue in question was explicitly contrary to the Constitution, the states should be bound to follow the rule. And here, I, I have to do more research on why Henry eventually left the anti-federalist camp, but do recall from a previous episode that in the biography I'm reading about Thomas Jefferson, there, there was some speculation at the time that maybe Henry wasn't really a dyed-in-the-wool anti-federalist, but more of a political opportunist who just sort of went whichever way the wind blew him. Um, I haven't found anything to substantiate that level of criticism, and Spencer Rowan certainly did not think this, this was the actual nature of his father-in-law. Rowan attributed Henry's change to declining health, and it seems that maybe the French Revolution scared Henry into loathing the excesses of democracy. So I, I, don't, I still don't really know what exactly caused him to flip and do such a radical 180 from being the champion of, of states' rights to now basically being a federalist. But I, I will do more research on that, and we'll try to have an episode on the topic at some point. But Rowan would also use his time on the Court of Appeals to help set up a path for emancipation within the state. So, some context here. Spencer Rowan did state several times in life that he considered slavery a great evil in the abstract, but he was a slaveholder. Nevertheless, he did consider it his duty to treat his slaves humanely, and once he achieved his judgeship, he heard a very important case on manumission in the state case of Pleasance v. Pleasance. And this case involved the slaves of an anti-slavery Quaker named John Pleasance who wished for his hundreds of slaves to be freed upon his death. But Virginia law at that time made manumission illegal, so John had to get clever, and he wrote in his will that should the state law ever change, his desire or his will was for his slaves to be free. Now, John passed away in 1771, but in 1782, the Virginia legislature passed resolutions allowing for voluntary manumission. So the Pleasant slaves should have been freed by the terms of John's will when, when this occurred. Unfortunately, the devisees of the Pleasant's estate decided otherwise, and they actually tried to hold the slaves in bondage anyway. Now, the slaves' case was heard by George Wythe in 1798, and Justice Wythe sided with the slaves and awarded them back pay to the year 1782, along with their freedom, and the reason he used 1782 as the year for the back pay is because that's when they should have been freed anyway by the terms of the will, because that's the year, again, that the legislature made it legal for voluntary manumission. Well, the decision was appealed to Rowan's Court of Appeals in 1800, and Justice Rowan considered the case in its truest sense to involve human liberty, despite laws which denoted slaves as property at the time, and the court upheld the previous ruling in favor of manumission. And Justice Rowan would write this on the case, quote, The contingency has happened, and here he's talking about for the slaves to be free. Emancipation ought therefore to have been made. What then is the condition of the children born a mother so postponed in the enjoyment of their freedom? Are they at birth entitled to freedom, or are they too to be postponed until the age of 30? Such children are not the children of slaves, and the legatees can no more restrain their right to freedom than they can that of any other persons born free, end quote. So the only part of the original decision that Justice Rowan did not uphold was the back pay stipulation, since he thought that maintenance expenses incurred on behalf of the slaves served as an offset for wages owed. Now, we can argue that point. Um, you know, I, I do think there's some validity there to say, okay, Yes, slavery was bad. Obviously, nobody's going to argue that. But as long as the slaves were being maintained, 
I, I do think there's some sort of credibility there to say, okay, maintenance expenses should kind of be offset to for wages. And you see that even now, obviously nobody is a slave now, but you do sort of see that now in companies where maybe the wages are a little bit lower, but they have really good benefits. So it, it's kind of a trade-off. Um, I actually agree with, with Spencer Rowan's take there. If you don't, that that's perfectly fine. And I, I fully understand why you may not understand that or, or not necessarily that you don't understand, but don't agree with it. So an important point in this is that Justice Rowan based his entire decision within the confines of then existing Virginia state law, which ensured that the precedent was set in favor of emancipation should any future similar cases arise within the state. So he actually had a, a big, big hand in making sure that emancipation would be part of the precedent of the state law, or rather the state judicial system. Now, it was also during his time on the Court of Appeals that he would become a thorn in the side of John Marshall. And, and I mean, he would just be the ultimate foe of the Marshall Court. So when the Jeffersonian Revolution was completed in the election of 1800, Thomas Jefferson saw the problem of lingering Federalist influence immediately stating, quote, the Federalists have retired into the judiciary as a stronghold. There the remains of Federalism are to be preserved and fed from the Treasury, and from that battery all the works of, of Republicanism are to be beaten down and erased, end quote. And the importance of this cannot be understated, as we must recall how John Adams made at least 16 judicial appointments during his last days in office, which are now known as the Midnight Judges. And among these appointees would be the man more destructive of state sovereignty than anyone else besides Abraham Lincoln, John Marshall. Now, in some ways, John Marshall has to be considered a, an American hero because he actually saw extensive combat during the American Revolution it, but unlike many other Virginia statesmen at the time, he had more sympathy with commercial and shipping interests than he did with the landed aristocracy. So to an extent, you could say he was a Southern man with New England principles or New England values, and he was serving as Secretary of State to John Adams when he received his appointment as Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, though it hasn't been conclusively proven, there is some speculation that had Adams not made this appointment, Thomas Jefferson actually intended to appoint Spencer Rowan to the Supreme Court. And that's, again, another incredibly fascinating what-if question in American history. What if Spencer Rowan had taken the chief justice position of the Supreme Court? How different would some of the big landmark cases in early American history look? We can never know that. But... With Spencer Rowan having such a strong dislike of, for Marshall, the stage was set for a judicial showdown between the sovereign state of Virginia and the Supreme Court of the general government. And during this time, Rowan would further entrench his belief that the states and state judiciaries in particular were the strongest positions from which to resist federal overreach and protect the individual liberty of the citizens of the states. And the first major showdown between Spencer Rowan and John Marshall would come with the case Martin V. Hunter's Lessee. Now, this case involved land that had been granted as a royal gift to a man in Virginia, Lord Fairfax, who passed away without an heir during the Revolution. And Lord Fairfax had been a British loyalist, and so the state of Virginia confiscated the land upon his death. The Treaty of Paris included a non-confiscation clause for subjects who had remained loyal during the war, so the major question was, could a federal treaty compel a state to return confiscated land, or in effect, overturn state law? 
And this case was held up in the Virginia Ratifying Convention as a huge reason not to ratify the new Constitution, and the Anti-Federalist position argued that this was an explicit example of a federal treaty nullifying the law of sovereign states, as we just said. John Marshall, on the other hand, assured the convention that in cases such as this, the plaintiff would only be subject to state law and therefore would have to go through the state court system to recover the land. They could not just make a direct appeal to the federal court system, according to Marshall at the Virginia Ratifying Convention. Now, when the case reached its apex, Denny Fairfax, who had been named the executor of the estate, grew weary of the litigation and sold his contested title to the land to none other than John Marshall and a group of several other land speculators. Marshall was at this time a member of the Virginia General Assembly and introduced state legislation that, air quote, settled the matter and saw the choicest tracts of the estate awarded to himself and his cohort. This was actually known as the Compromise of 1796. And so, yeah, Marshall... Very corrupt. I mean, again, on one hand, you have to consider him an American hero because of his service during the Revolution. But on the other hand, just extremely, extremely corrupt when it came to political dealings after the war. Now, the litigation for this case, however, would continue to drag on for several more years. So there were all kinds of different lawsuits that were actually basically expelled or closed with the Compromise of 1796, but there was one in particular that that was not closed out, which would ultimately become Martin V. Hunter's lessee. And the litigation would actually even drag on until after Marshall received his appointment as Chief Justice. And around this time, he and his compatriots decided to revive a literal feudal practice known as quit rent. So for those who don't know what quit rent is, it's sort of like a mixture of property taxes and mineral rights, but the taxes in hand, they don't. You're not paying them to your municipal government. You're you're paying them to the baron of the land or the lord of the land, and these payments must continue even after the baron has sold the title to the land. They they still retain a right to payment with quit rents, and so that that's what I'm saying. They're sort of like mineral rights because mineral rights don't transfer with the land. You have to buy those separately. But the land baron gives up claim to the land but not the alleged right of compensation for selling someone else the privilege of ownership of said land. So kind of confusing, very corrupt. I, I don't I don't get that to me. Even with mineral rights, once you give up your claim to it, that's it. If you give up your claim to the land, by extension, you should also give up your claim to what's underneath the land. That's my opinion. A lot of people disagree with that, but, you know, to each their own. So this was similar to that because it's like, that makes no sense. If you're selling me the land, that's it. You're giving up all claim to it. You're giving up the title. I'm now the owner. I don't owe you anything other than the agreed upon selling price. But to support this practice, Marshall pointed to a law that had been passed during Virginia's early colonial period and somehow had never been repealed. Now, obviously, the new landholders were outraged by this and they subsequently refused to pay Marshall's quit rents. And when litigation in Martin V. Hunter's lessee resumed, Marshall specifically argued that he and his cronies possessed the rights conveyed by the British Crown to the original owner, Lord Fairfax, which included the right to collect quit rent. So, again, how blatantly corrupt was this? A man who served in the American side of the revolution broke away and pointed to the opposition. I, I mean, he pointed to British tyranny to say, look, I, I have this right under British law, even though he was an, Amer an American patriot. Like, no, that is the whole reason we fought the war, to get rid of British tyranny. 
So again, just horribly, horribly corrupt at the state level and and trying to pursue his profiteering. And he wanted to just plunder the local citizenry by speculating on the land. So he, I'm sure he sold it for way more than he bought it for. And not only that, but just charged them in perpetuity under a British grant. It just is mind-blowing to me. But this case would eventually make its way to the Virginia Court of Appeals, and Spencer Rowan was ready and waiting, and let me tell you, he was having none of it in favor of John Marshall. And he would actually include the following in his opinion on the case, quote, the legislature of the then-sovereign state of Virginia, premising that the whole of that extensive territory had devolved on alien enemies, confiscated the land. I know of no means more efficacious than this to have taken possession of the quit rents and even of the granite lands in that territory, end quote. So essentially what he's saying is federal treaty be damned. The sovereign state of Virginia acted in its sovereign capacity to take land from now enemy occupants, which means that all royal grants are forfeit, including the right of quit rent. Now, Marshall was obviously dissatisfied with this decision, and he directly contradicted his statements in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, and he appealed the case to his own Supreme Court. Again, how corrupt do you have to be? Now, he did have the decency to recuse himself officially, but again, how horrible are these optics? A sovereign state court declared he would not be allowed to so grossly profiteer in this manner, and so he throws a temper turn, excuse me, so he throws a temper tantrum and has the case brought before his cronies at the Supreme Court, hoping for a different outcome. And even worse for perception, only four out of the then seven Supreme Court justices could or would hear the case, and one of them dissented, so ultimately the case was decided by a minority of the black robe priesthood. You had three three justices out of seven decide this case. And Marshall actually remained extremely active and personally involved in the case behind the scenes, with even members of his own court disclosing how much influence he had in the decision. Justice 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 Joseph Story wrote the opinion which ruled in favor of the Marshall faction, citing specifically the Treaty of Paris and the Jay Treaty as supreme to the acts of the Virginia legislature, confirming the worst fears of the Anti-Federalist. And Story went on to issue a writ that ordered the Virginia Court of Appeals to enter judgment in favor of Philip Martin and the Marshall faction. But Spencer Rowan and the Virginia Court of Appeals refused to follow the order. And instead, they invited members of the Virginia Bar to present arguments on the matter in open court. And this would come to a head on December 16, 1815, when the Virginia Court of Appeals outright defied the Supreme Court. With the unanimous declaration, the appellate authority of the Supreme Court did not extend to the courts of the sovereign states, and that Section 25 of the Judiciary Act of 1789 was unconstitutional and therefore of no effect. And Justice Rowan specifically would write this in his opinion on the case, quote, that a centripetal as well as centrifugal principle exists in the government and that no calamity would be more to be deplored by the American people than a vortex in the general government, which should engulf and sweep away every vestige of the state constitutions, end quote. And also, quote, a power ought not to be considered as granite, and here he's talking about to the general government, because in the opinion of the judges expounding the Constitution, it ought to have been granted, end quote. So, 
Imagine the backbone it took to do this. The Virginia Court of Appeals with Rowan at the forefront is saying, we will not enforce this. You can't make us enforce this. We are a sovereign state, and as a sovereign state, pound sand. Outraged at the defiance of the Virginia Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court remanded the case to the original district court to force its decision there. But frustrated at every turn by Spencer Rowan, though, John Marshall gave up trying to collect the quit rents on the land. Now, the next major battles in the Rowan v. Marshall saga would occur as a result of two more landmark cases in the history of the United States Supreme Court. McCulloch v. Maryland and the issue of state ability to tax a federal agency in Cohen's v. Virginia, which was a huge battle over the ability of the federal judiciary to practice judicial review over state law, would be the cases that saw these two diametrically opposed forces collide. And the result would be some of the best essays ever written in defense of states' rights and our points of interest for the next few episodes. Spencer Rowan's Hamden and Algernon Sidney essays. And we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here for today, but in our next few episodes, we are going to go ahead and read through these essays in their entirety and uncover the true nature of the American Union and how to fight federal usurpation at every turn. Because this is a multi-front fight. You have to fight it from the legislature, the judiciary, the executive. The states have all this infrastructure. It's time that we understand that and start using it. So that's going to be the focus when we start reading through these essays. That's going to be the focus. What did the early generations think? The first and second generations of America, what did they actually think about the Union? How was it composed? And that's going to be the point of focus when we start reading through these. Now, the major source for today's episode is a book by David Johnson called Irreconcilable Founders. And I do strongly, strongly encourage y'all to give that book a read. And I'll make sure to include a link for it in the show notes page for anyone who wants to purchase it. This is not going to be an affiliate link. I won't make any money off of that. I have to tell y'all that. But um, I, I just think it's a book well worth reading, so I will include a link. And again, I, I beg y'all to read that book. And it goes super far in depth. I mean, obviously way more than I can in a 35 to 40 minute podcast. But again, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up for today. And we'll pick this up with the essays of huge importance from Spencer Rowan. So thank y'all again for tuning in. And guys, please remember, if you find value in the podcast to consider contributing to the show, you can contribute on a recurring basis through the supporting listener link in the show notes page, or you can make a one-time contribution by using the show's cash app information, which is also included in that show notes page. Any contribution amounts help, and thank you again to everyone in advance who decides to do so. And also, please consider downloading the MeWe app and joining the show's private MeWe group so we can have more sane and rational discussion around historical and current political issues. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time.